Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Man in the Making, with former monk Rajan Shankara and myself, Rokas. Thank you for joining me, Rajan. Thank you, Rokas. Today we'll be going over domestication and the dream of the planet from The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Okay, so Rokas, it's my understanding that we're going to skip the introduction, right? Yeah, well, I want to get straight into it, uh, so... It doesn't bother listener. This will be good from my perspective, um, just to let everyone know. I'm unfamiliar with this work. I think I have seen the cover of the book. It's a very iconic cover with the four plants on the corners. Um, I, I I am familiar with with when the book was released, and and I and I this guy kind of made it um, famous uh, with Oprah. And, uh, but I, I've never actually read his work, so it's, it's kind of refreshing and it's not ancient. It's from 1997. Um, okay. So here we go. Yeah. Uh, let's begin. What you are seeing and hearing right now is nothing but a dream. You are dreaming right now in this moment. You're dreaming with the brain awake. Dreaming is the main function of the mind and the mind dreams 24 hours a day. It dreams when the brain is awake and it also dreams when the brain is asleep. The difference is that when the brain is awake, there is a material frame that makes us perceive things in a linear way. When we go to sleep, we do not have that frame and the dream has a tendency to change constantly. We were born with the capacity to learn how to dream. And the humans who live before us teach us how to dream the way society dreams. The outside dream has so many rules that when a new human is born, we hook the child's attention and introduce these rules into his or her mind. The outside dream uses mom and dad, the schools and religion to teach us how to dream. So I, think, yeah. I think that this is, um, <clears throat> I like the, uh, I like and I don't like the dream aspect of, of the work because dreams have a connotation that things aren't real. Um, so when I started reading this earlier, I was a little, I was a little, uh, I had to keep in mind that dream is a word to explain uh, what other authors would call an intersubjective reality. And it's in the way my guru teached it is that it's, it's a relatively real reality. So yes, I understand the, the dream, um, the dream analogy, but at the same time, my guru didn't want to use that in his teachings because he didn't, he didn't want people to feel like they could do anything without repercussions or without consequences and that we still have this kind of relatively real goal to focus on in life. And that that's just the first thing that comes to mind when, when we, so, someone starts talking about the world as a, as a dream. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really good input. Um, yeah. Good thing to clarify. Thank you. Cool. Attention is the ability we have to discriminate and to focus only on that which we want to perceive. We can perceive millions of things simultaneously, but using our attention, we can hold whatever we want to perceive in the foreground of our mind. The adults around us hooked our attention and put information into our minds for repetition. That is the way we learned everything we know. And that's definitely something that I write about and talk about all the time. Um, we're, we're all on a, a type of script that we've taken in. So for me, all of that is, is very true so far. And I like what he goes on to say um, about relearning things. And, and I think what, like one of my favorite quotes from popular culture, culture is uh, Yoda who said, uh, who said, um, you must unlearn what you've learned, right? So same, same concept. Yeah, just thought I'd add that. Nice. Um, so continuing on, um, by using our attention, we learned a whole reality, a whole dream, 
We learned how to behave in society, what to believe and what not to believe, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, what is good and what is bad, what is beautiful and what is ugly, what is right and what is wrong. It was all there already, all that knowledge, all those rules and concepts about how to behave in the world. Yeah, and I think one word to sum up that is just culture. Uh, and then maybe a second word would be tradition. So we have culture and traditions that have been passed down since people started to share stories about existence. For sure. We, we definitely have a story built in as we grow up and it's kind of what we're supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, something that he talks about later on. When you were in school, just sat in a little chair and put your attention on what the teacher was teaching you. When you went to church and put your attention on what the priest or minister was telling you, there's the same dynamic with mom and dad, brothers and sisters. They were all trying to hook your attention. We also learned to hook the attention of other humans and we develop a need for attention, which can become very competitive. Children compete for the attention of their parents, their teachers, their friends. Look at me, look at what I'm doing. Hey, I'm here. The need for attention becomes very strong and continues into adulthood. As children, we didn't have the opportunity to choose our beliefs, but we agreed with the information that was passed to us from the dream of the planet by other humans. The only way to store information is by agreement. The outside dream may hook our attention, but if we don't agree, we don't store that information. As soon as we agree, we believe it, and that is called faith. To have faith is to believe unconditionally. I like that. I didn't catch that the first time around. Um, and this is called faith. Yeah, it absolutely is called faith. To have faith is to believe unconditionally. Yeah. Most of the things that we do, we have faith in first, right? And then we experience it. Maybe one of the challenges, I think, if you were to go with this dream concept and, and that we're all conditioned to think a certain way, one of the challenges would be that we we don't even experience the things that we have faith in. So without experience we would just have the knowledge of someone else without actually applying it but we just hope that it's true i guess i mean to me this is like everything on tv everything about politics if you people ask me about politics and it's like well i really haven't studied it so i don't feel like i yeah can say anything about it unless i take the topic and actually research it and study it so yeah, that's, I think that's good stuff uh, so far. That's how we learn as children. Children believe everything adults say. We agree with them and our faith is so strong that the belief system controls our whole dream of life. We didn't choose these beliefs and we may have rebelled against them, but we were not strong enough to win this rebellion. The result is surrender to the beliefs with our agreement. I call this process the domestication of humans. And through this domestication, we learn how to live and how to dream. In human domestication, the information from the outside dream is conveyed to the inside dream, creating our whole belief system. First, the child is taught the names of things, mom, dad, milk bottle, day by day, at home, at school, at church, and from television. We are told how to live, what kind of behavior is acceptable. The outside dream teaches us how to be a human. We have a whole concept of what a woman is and what a man is. And we also learn to judge. We judge ourselves, judge other people, judge the neighbors. And a note I made on this is because we judge other people, we assume that in the same way, other people also judge us. And the significance of this is explained further in the reading. Mm, yeah, I like that. Children are domesticated the same way that we domesticate a dog, a cat, or any other animal. In order to teach a dog, we punish the dog and we give it rewards. We train our children, whom we love so much, 
the same way that we train any domesticated animal, with a system of punishment and reward. We are told, you're a good boy, you're a good girl, when we do what mom and dad want us to do. When we don't, we are a bad girl or a bad boy. When we went against the rules, we were punished. When we went along with the rules, we got a reward. We were punished many times a day and we were also rewarded many times a day. Soon, we became afraid of being punished and also afraid of not receiving the reward. The reward is the attention that we get from our parents or from other people like siblings, teachers, and friends. We soon develop the need to hook other people's attention in order to get that reward. So this is where uh, I started to, you know, kind of critically analyze it and, and think about it in, in other terms. And I start to detach a little bit because I don't necessarily agree a hundred percent. I mean, he's talking about culture and tradition and the raising of a child using the culture and tradition that the parents know and what they're trying to figure out. And given, you know, the benefit of the doubt to parents, I mean, we hope that most people are going to try to do their best. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's a system of reward and punishments and, and if not, like I'm, I'm pretty sure the child runs wild and I don't think that's a good thing. And I think the societal kind of subjective intersubjective reality or the dream as uh, Ruiz is saying, you know, I think up to a certain point until the, the brain is fully developed and, and the, the youth can critically think themselves. I kind of think that being inside the system is, is beneficial up to a certain point, right? I mean, does that make sense? But then in those first seven years, as science says, is when the child is most, it's like subconscious programming in that time. Yeah. So what you learn then is what will continue with you throughout the rest of your life. Mainly. Okay, so I mean, that's where I'm like, I, I give the benefit of the doubt to, to someone and someone's ability to be an intellectual uh, being and, and think for themselves. But at the same time, yeah, I can see how a lot of people are tr stuck in a trap and, and this kind of teaching is, which is also my kind of teaching, um, is necessary. But I guess I, I, my one of my questions as we'll read on is that I'm going to be thinking about is, well, what's the alternative? Maybe, maybe he'll answer that. Um, but from my perspective, it's more within what he says, there's a wide range of boundaries. So let's say with punishment, there are different ways you could punish and different ways you could reward. And parents who, um, because there are different ways to punish, it will affect the child differently. So what you say is good, yes, to have um, structure. Yeah, structure. But the way the structure is implemented can have a big influence on the child later on. Let's say if the child is beaten, that's sure. like the punishment, then that can mess them up. Oh, yeah. And, and I, we're both in agreement there. If that's what's going on, if that's the punishment and reward system, and if that's the tradition being passed down, then that's not good. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I'll carry on. The reward feels good, and we keep doing what others want us to do in order to get the reward with that fear of being punished and that fear of not getting the reward. We start pretending to be what we are not just to please others, just to be good enough for someone else. We start pretending to be what we are not just to please others, just to be good enough for someone else. We try to please mom and dad. We try to please the teachers at school. We try to please the church. And so we start acting. We pretend to be what we are not because we are afraid of being rejected. The fear of being rejected becomes the fear of not being good enough. Eventually, we become someone that we are not. We become a copy of mama's beliefs, daddy's beliefs, society's beliefs, and religion's beliefs. 
for sure. All our normal tendencies are lost in the process of domestication. And when we are old enough for our mind to understand, we learn the word no. The adults say, don't do this and don't do that. We rebel and say no. We rebel because we are defending our freedom. We want to be ourselves, we are very little, and the adults are big and strong. After a certain time, we are afraid because we know that every time we do something wrong, we are going to be punished. The domestication is so strong that at a certain point in our life, we no longer need anyone to domesticate us. We don't need mom or dad, the school or the church to domesticate us. We are so well trained that we are our own domesticator. We are an auto-domesticated animal. We can now domesticate ourselves according to the same belief system we were given and using the same system of punishment and reward. We punish ourselves when we don't follow the rules according to our belief system. We reward ourselves when we are the good boy or the good girl. The belief system is like a book of law that rules our mind. Without question, whatever is in that book of law is our truth. We base all of our judgments according to the book of law, even if these judgments go against our own inner nature. There is something in our minds that judges everybody and everything, including the weather, the dog, the cat, everything. The inner judge uses words in our book of law to judge everything we do and don't do, everything we think and don't think, and everything we feel and don't feel. Everything lives under the tyranny of this judge. Every time we do something that goes against the book of law, the judge says we are guilty and need to be punished. We should be ashamed. This happens many times a day, day after day, for all the years of our lives. I like the judge aspect. I like the book of law. And I agree. Like We all have this inner uh, this judge that is taking concepts from the world or, or data, perceiving it, and then judging it. I mean, I, I agree that that's happening and I, and I, I think that that's something that's necessary. I, I don't know if we even have a choice. Um, I mean, we don't have to judge something, but eventually if we want to accomplish anything, we have to kind of, so he's talking about morals and ethics, right? Morals are the internalized belief systems that we use to judge and use as a, a value, value hierarchy. So our values. And what is higher up on our value hierarchy is something that we prioritize. But then he goes, everything lives under the tyranny of this. And I don't think it's tyranny. I mean, if you don't have values, then, then what's going on? I guess. So how I perceived it was, let's say you're taught things of what you shouldn't do in childhood. Then when you see other people doing it, let's say later on in life, you take from those things that you learn and you judge those people for doing those things because you were told those shouldn't be done. So when you see someone else doing it, inside your mind, you're judging them for, yeah, for doing those things. Sure. So can you We're not be in touch with that as well? Can you repeat, yeah. sorry? You, you, you compare your value hierarchy to someone else's, to yeah. their hierarchy. Um, and a note I made on that paragraph is, to me, this explains social anxiety. Caring about what other people think about you stems from your judgment of others. Because you judge other people, you assume that other people are the same and judge you. But in reality, people are too busy thinking about what others think of them to care about you. When you're in public, you think people have their eyes on you or are thinking about you. But in reality, they are too busy thinking the exact same thing. Agreed. Um, so from that perspective, what do you think about if you were able to stop judging other people? Would that, in the same way, stop you from thinking that others are judging you? Yeah, I think that's a, a fascinating uh, question. I mean... Absolutely. Uh, I think you're right in the first sentiment about social anxiety. And th yeah, then in that situation, the word tyranny is perfect. 
because you're, you're definitely under a, a tyrannical force. If you're constantly anxiety ridden, you know, full of anxiety in fear of what other people are thinking. And, and it's like, that's an unfortunate situation to be in. And it's so common. And that's where, you know, yeah, if you could be, if you could eventually, right. As you mature enough, as you learn enough, as you go through enough experiences and other cultures in life, you start to realize that no one really cares about you that much. Maybe there's surface judgments, but beyond that, they're just trying to survive their own day. They're just trying to get by without shaking up too many feathers or ruffling too many feathers at work or at school. You know, that's why I say I really, I, maybe I give people the benefit of the doubt too much, but yeah, I, I do work with people who I'm trying to restructure their value system to, to fit a more healthier and, and positive outlook. So far, I get it, but I don't know if everyone reading this would get it because they don't have, they're not trained to understand the, the philosophy or to entertain the thoughts or to, to listen to his thoughts without entertaining them. So, you know, it's great to be a, a, a free spirit and, and to go around and not judge people. I think that's powerful. And I recommend that. And in spiritual maturity, I believe you get to a judgeless state of other people. Um, like you do you, I'm going to do me, but everyone has their value, so to speak. Like everyone has their price. Eventually the value of our, eventually our values intersect ideally. Like as a country, we all support the country as a family. We all support the family as a human. We all try to not hurt other humans. Those are shared values. And this is a philosophy full of, of um, minutia or details that I think is important to talk about, I guess. Okay. Yeah, moving on. There is another part of us that receives the judgment. And this part is called the victim. The victim carries the blame, the guilt, and the shame. It is the part of us that says, poor me, I'm not good enough. I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not worthy of love. Poor me. The big judge agrees and says, yes, you are not good enough. And this is all based on a belief system that we never choose to believe. These beliefs are so strong that even years later, when we are exposed to new concepts and try to make our own decisions, we find that these beliefs, we find that these beliefs still control our lives. Absolutely. Whatever goes against the book of law will make you feel a funny sensation in your solar plexus, and it's called fear. Breaking the rules in the book of law opens your emotional wounds, and your reaction is to create emotional poison. Because everything that is in the book of law has to be true. Anything that changes, what you believe is going to make you feel unsafe. Even if the book of law is wrong, it makes you feel safe that is why we need a great deal of courage to challenge our own beliefs because even if we know we didn't choose all these beliefs it is also true that we agreed to all of them the agreement is so strong that even if we understand the concept of it not being true we feel the blame the guilt and the shame that occur if we go against these rules yeah, uh, that, uh, I remember the first time I learned about cognitive dissonance, you know, and that's basically changing your belief system around or changing the facts to fit your belief system. And, and even if something comes out that proves you wrong, you still don't believe it. So I get, I get all this so far and, and it's, it's true, I think. Just as the government has a book of laws that rules the society's dream, our belief system is the book of laws that rules our personal dream. All these laws exist in our mind. We believe them 
and the judge inside us bases everything on these result on these rules. The judge decrees and the victim suffers the guilt and punishment. But who says there is justice in this dream? True justice is paying only once for each mistake. True injustice is paying more than once for each mistake. How many times do we pay for one mistake? The answer is thousands of times. The human is the only animal on earth that pays a thousand times for the same mistake. The rest of the animals pay once for every mistake they make, but not us. We have a powerful memory. We make a mistake, we judge ourselves, we find ourselves guilty, and we punish ourselves. If justice exists, then that was enough. We don't need to do it again. But every time we remember, we judge ourselves again, we're guilty again, and we punish ourselves again and again and again. If we have a wife or husband, he or she also reminds us of the mistake, so we can judge ourselves again, punish ourselves again, and find ourselves guilty again. Is this fair? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I completely agree because I just, it just sometimes randomly pops up in my head things I've done maybe years ago and that I regret doing and then I just hate myself for doing them. To a point it got like really bad to the point where I needed to hit something, a table or something when I remember because of how dumb I felt for doing it. But something that helps me I can't remember where I heard it, but it was something along the lines of when you feel that feeling, embrace it and just imagine surrounding it with love. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, just, and it helped me um, embracing it and forgiving myself and yeah, feeling love that made like that sensation of i mean that feeling of just like anger towards those emotions go away and yeah and then it stopped happening now it like rarely happens which is nice awesome i love that thank Um, you what would be your input on that um yeah i mean i don't know about the whole we're the only animal that does that thing but i do know that people have past trauma that they haven't resolved and and we all have experiences that are confusing and we haven't been able to extract the lesson from it and they continue to haunt us. I absolutely understand that. Um, So what we were trained to do as monks is that that's why we self author. That's why we create a journal about our life and have 10 pages for every year we were born, if not more, minimum 10 pages and then um, slowly burn those pages and and have this writing practice that shows our mind that that was the past and this is now and that the two don't need to superimpose themselves on our mind and past was there and this is now and that's that's something that needs to be dealt with for ultimate um, peace of mind absolutely Uh, and People do judge themselves and find themselves guilty. Um, I get that. Absolutely. In terms of fairness, I think those questions kind of bug me because is it fair? I says that a few times, you know, it's, it's karma basically that that's how, how the East Eastern philosophy sees it. And it, is is it fair? Like everything is fair. In other words, that's what karma says. Karma says there's action and reaction in the world and you've caused action before that is causing a reaction now. And even the pain and even the punishment and the trauma that we go through is, is to learn an ultimate lesson. And, uh, is that fair? I mean, absolutely. In my opinion and in the opinion of everyone who follows Eastern philosophy. Um, but I think that's assuming that you actually did something wrong. Does karma still apply if it's like a minor thing that it's not like you actually done wrong to someone, but it's something that you feel like you should have done differently and maybe things would have went better. But it's not that you're harming a person or like something's going wrong. But Does that's karma not, still apply yeah. there? Yeah, karma still applies there. Um, and, and what you 
just inferred about karma is very common and people think that karma is bad and yeah. karma like, is, yeah, it's like it's life altering but karma is is everything like us talking now and having a conversation we're creating karma we're creating a ripple upon the waters of existence and there's a there's a vibrational rate that is going out and that's karma karma is everything and when there's the only time there's not karma is when there's no action and reaction and that's in the deepest states of meditation that's why the yogi meditates because they they wish to transcend the karmic you know uh, bur the burden of karma basically which is this ongoing repetitive state where we create and react and create and react and so even even the the little things the the small injustices in our life and the, the silly things that we shouldn't worry about, but maybe we have low self-esteem and low self-worth and things like that. All, all that is karma too. And learning about the process and learning about how you are important, you do matter, and that you're worth, you're the thing worth saving, that's karma too. And that, that's, the, that's why everything under karma is fair because, you know, essentially we realize that we're the, the doer of every reaction and that means that we may not have caused the action we may have had trauma come to us but it's our choice it's our reactionary choice to respond however we want and that's where it's fair okay yeah the judge in the mind is wrong because the belief system the book of law is wrong the whole dream is based on our false law. 95% of the beliefs we have stored in our minds are nothing but lies, and we suffer because we believe all these lies. All of humanity is searching for truth, justice, and beauty. We are on an eternal search for the truth because we only believe in the lies we have stored in our mind. We are searching for justice because in the belief system we have, there is no justice. We search for beauty because it doesn't matter how beautiful a person is. We don't believe that person has beauty. We keep searching and searching when everything is already within us. There is no truth to find. Wherever we turn our heads, all we see is the truth. But with the agreements and beliefs we have stored in our mind, we have no eyes for this truth. Uh, what do you think about that? Um, I'm, it's... Uh, that's what that's what a mystic would say. I mean, and I consider myself a mystic. So yes, um, uh, all of humanity is searching for truth, justice and beauty. We're on an eternal search for the truth because we only believe in the lies we have stored in our mind. Uh, yeah, we are searching for justice because in the belief system we have, um, there is no justice. I mean, I don't agree, but Moving on from the bigger, there's a bigger idea here. We search for beauty because it doesn't matter how beautiful a person is. And we don't believe that person has beauty. For sure. Our, our, our whole uh, value system on, on appearance is, is completely um, uh, adulterated and confusing. And it doesn't make sense. We keep searching and searching when everything is already within us. That's the part I wanted to find. We keep searching and searching when everything is already in us. Boom. That is exactly uh, what, what I believe and what um, mystics believe. Uh, there is no truth to find. Yes, absolutely. That's the secret behind meditation. Is there's nothing to get. Uh, there's nothing to be revealed to you except for the fact that what you were looking for was already there the entire time. And it's the, it's the ultimate dichotomy or, uh, I don't know, paradox of, of mysticism and of ignorance and truth. And that we're only ignorant because we haven't realized that we are everything already. So, you know, it's the, it's the donkey uh, going after the carrot, so to speak. But uh, the ultimate carrot lies within. I don't know. <laughs> yeah i love that there is no truth to find wherever we turn our heads all we see is the truth 
but with the agreements and beliefs we have stored in our minds, we have no eyes for this truth. Yeah. So with our past conditioning of, I mean, I hate to say it, but maybe I don't hate to say it with Abrahamic belief systems of, of God in the sky and Jesus Christ as our savior. Um, you know, that's where a lot of Western culture comes from is, is Christianity and Catholicism that, that makes it so that we have to surrender to a, a being greater than ourselves or we'll go to hell. And it's, it's very difficult to convince Abrahamic conditioned people to believe that they themselves are divinity and that, you know, everything around them is divine and that there is no untruth and that there is no evil and there is no um, inherent evil built in. It's just relative. So I, I, that's where I go full head, head on and I'm, I'm with it a hundred percent. Absolutely. Nice. We don't see the truth because we are blind. What blinds us are all those false beliefs we have in our mind. We have the need to be right and to make others wrong. We trust what we believe and our beliefs set, set us up for suffering. It is as if we live in the middle of a fog that doesn't let us see any further than our own nose. We live in a fog that is not even real. This fog is a dream, your personal dream of life, what you believe, all the concepts you have about what you are, all the agreements you have made with others, with yourself, and even with God. Your whole mind is a fog, which the Toltecs called the mitote. Your mind is a dream where a thousand people talk at the same time and nobody understands each other. This is the condition of the human mind, a big mitote. And with that big mitote, you cannot see what you really are. In India, they call the mitote maya, which means illusion. It is the personality's notion of I am. Everything you believe about yourself and the world, all the concepts and programming you have in your mind are all mitote. We cannot see who we truly are. We cannot see that we are not free. I like it. Um but it, it's a difficult concept for most people it, yeah. to, say, to say that like every concept in your mind is not real, false. This fog is a dream. Uh, what, what you believe, all the concepts you have about what you are, all the agreements you have made with others yourself, that that's not real. And, and I understand what he's trying to say and get at. And I understand what Yogi's, try to get at when they speak about absolute truth and and the truth of existence and reality i get that but there's there's another side to that to me and, and to the way i was taught and that that's why we add the word in relative like it's relatively real the things that i've been conditioned to think the 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 things that i do every day the things that i say to other people those things are relatively real to me because it's a part of my life and, and the, the things that people do even unconsciously, you know, they go to work, they, they, if they hate their job, they just kind of hope that time passes by. And when we're driving, sometimes we don't even realize we're driving because we're not fully aware, you know, all those things are happening relatively. They're not, not happening. Um, so they're still real in some sense. However, to, to bridge the gap between the people who are depressed and have a low self-worth to the people who are living their ultimate life in, in harmony with the universe, to bridge that gap by saying everything you're doing is false and an illusion, um, I think is, is um, so challenging to do. It's, it, it, it's why I was trained the way I was trained. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a spiritual teaching and the teaching in India of Maya that everything is an illusion. That's a spiritual teaching as well. 
And so what I'm saying is spiritual teachers have to bridge the gap for yeah. the people that don't know their teaching to the people that do. Yeah. And, and the bridge here is using this dream concept and that we have agreements that are false and we've all been conditioned to think a certain way, but it's ultimately not true. And, and that's where I have, I both understand it, but I also don't like it is, and it's kind of funny. I, I don't, Okay. Yeah. Like, not that I don't believe in it because I do, but I don't like the way it's conveyed. And, and if it, if it, if it stands out to you and makes you do something about your life, then all, you know, more power to you. I wanted you to dissect it. That's why um, I was going to ask, but then you just started talking about it yourself. So, yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful teaching. Um, but like all teachings, there are certain ways to convey it. And I guess I'm biased because I, I was taught to convey teachings a certain way that would be most agreeable to people who are just hearing this kind of stuff for the first time. So imagine going up to Bill at the newspaper who's been doing it for 30 years and you're like, hey, man, all that stuff is false. Like, you're doing it wrong. And he's like, uh, what? So you know, there's, there's a softer way to explain to someone that, that they're God, so to speak. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, continuing on. Yes. That is why humans resist life. To be alive is the biggest fear humans have. Death is not the biggest fear we have. Our biggest fear is taking the risk to be alive. The risk to be alive and express what we really are. Just being ourselves is the biggest fear of humans. We have learned to live our life trying to satisfy other people's demands. We have learned to live by other people's point of view because of the fear of not being accepted and of not being good enough for someone else. I would agree with that in a way, but from your perspective, how does that sound? Yeah, I mean, I agree. Uh, to be alive is the biggest fear of humans have. I mean, it's very poetic. I, I, I'm yeah. exposing who you really are is a, a big fear. Even like, yeah, I'm not sure if that's a big fear. I, I think people are just ignorant. They don't know, so they don't seek. Like. It's not that they fear, you know, I, I think it's, they just, they're just ignorant. Like they literally do not know. And um, that's why spiritual teachings come to people in small chunks. Um, I'm not sure it's, it's something that they just fear. Um, I think people mostly fear uh, other people, to be honest. I mean, I think most people prefer to be, in a comfortable environment where they don't have to be challenged. That that's, that's what I teach. I think if most people found out that they were not the body, but they were spirit, then I think most people, once they get that idea, they're, they're all about it. And they're like, absolutely. Like, give me more. Um, but if they feared that, I mean, being themselves, then they, they would avoid it. And, and maybe that's the case, right? Of course, with, with, a certain percentage of the population, but I think most of the population never hears this kind of thing. So they just go about life the way they're going about it. And uh, that's why we believe in reincarnation. That's why uh, uh, Eastern philosophy teaches that we, we come back to this world over and over and over again to kind of figure that out slowly. Um, and it's not based out of fear, based out of ignorance. Um, we have the the I got an idea on the last one. We have learned to live by other people's points of view. Yeah, that's the part I was trying to ask about. Live by other people's points of view because of the fear of not being accepted and of not being good enough for someone else. I mean, that's pretty prevalent, right? That's <clears throat> we have learned to live our life trying to satisfy other people's demands. True, we have learned to live by other people's points of view because of the fear of not being accepted and of not being good enough for someone else. Absolutely true. As to what age group that per pertains to, I think once you get to a certain age, 
you break out of that pretty quick and you're like, yeah, I'm actually going to do me now. Um, and we can thank some parts of popular culture uh, for exposing people to self-confidence and to self-worth and to having an individual nature, being an individual in society instead of being part of the group. Um, but yes, there are people that are in the you know, stuck to the group mindset. But again, I think that that's probably mostly just young people. And, yeah. Uh, um, I really like your answer on that because yeah, it does apply to my age group and younger for sure. Mainly yeah. I guess you, once you're older, you realize. Yeah. Because I'm an old man and you're a, you're, <laughs> you're a very young person. <laughs> I feel like I can say that. Uh, I don't know. I, I, you just see it. Uh, the more and more you, you experience culture, you just see people break out of their shell. Usually after university, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty calculable. Um, okay. Yeah. So continuing during the process of domestication, we form an image of what perfection is in order to try to be good enough. You create an image of how we should be in order to be accepted by everybody. We especially try to please the ones who love us, like mom and dad, big brothers and sisters, the priest and the teacher. Trying to be good enough for them, we create an image of perfection, but we don't fit this image. We create this image, but this image is not real. We're never going to be perfect from this point of view, never. Not being perfect, we reject ourselves, and the level of self-rejection depends upon how effective the adults were in breaking our integrity. After domestication, it is no longer about being good enough for anybody else. We are not good enough for ourselves because we don't fit with our own image of perfection. We cannot forgive ourselves for not being what we wish to be, or rather, what we believe we should be. We cannot forgive ourselves for not being perfect. We know we are not what we believe we are supposed to be, and so we feel false, frustrated, and dishonest. We try to hide ourselves, and we pretend to be what we are not. The result is that we feel unauthentic and wear social masks to keep others from noticing us. We are so afraid that somebody else will notice that we are not what we pretend to be. We judge others according to our image of perfection as well, and naturally, they fall short of our expectations. I think right. in a way that was what I was talking about before. Yeah, yeah, that that stuck out to me as as that that's kind of exactly what we were we were trying to get at earlier. Uh, that it's all too common for people to basically just be be afraid of other people. And large groups, uh, social social settings, yeah, because of the the eyes upon you, like, and somehow exposing your your real nature or exposing that you're pretending or something. That's that's a real thing, absolutely. Um, how we talked about on the podcast, why it is that there's such a big fear of showing your true self, and why you put on a mask. What was your question? Um, have we spoken oh, about have it we? before on the podcast? We, you know, a lot. Or was it, it off podcast? Back in the first season, um, when you asked me about social anxiety, it was, it was maybe the first or second episode. We talked about how, you know, why people do that and go through that and basically fear being wrong and in looking, looking, uh, foolish. Like everyone naturally wants to save face for some reason. Everyone wants to appear to know what they're doing and not appear to be an idiot. And, and, uh, usually when we're okay with being wrong is when we start to actually be ourselves and, and be open. But from another perspective, let's say for karaoke that people have to get, drunk in order to have the confidence to go up and sing like so, yeah. i mean so many people um but that was more where i was coming from that like it's you have to get drunk to it because you're afraid of people's judgment of your singing where does that fear stem from why 
are you so afraid of exposing your true self to other people? And you have to get drunk in order to potentially even do it. I, I, yeah, I think, it, I think that's a great example. I think it's because um, it's, it goes back to the, the fear of being wrong. In, in someone else's eyes, just like I think, just like Ruiz is saying in this in this short manual, it's that it's that, and then when we can we have alcohol, it, we lose right. We we lose our inhibitions, like we lose our our restrictions upon ourselves, and so we do things, we do that which we would never do when we were sober. Now, when you get to a certain point of of maturity and comfort being comfortable and, and, and secure with it, with yourself and your own talents and your own view of the world. It doesn't matter if you're drunk or, or sober, you, you act the same way. You're free, you know, granted when you're sober, you're more graceful, but you, you act in the same freeing manner that you lose your inhibitions permanently as if you were, had a, had a few drinks. And you, you attain this state of like permanent looseness where it's all good. And the more you practice something, the, even the more you better you get. Right. So, yeah. We dishonor ourselves just to please other people. We even do harm to our physical bodies just to be accepted by others. You see teenagers taking drugs just to avoid being rejected by other teenagers. They are not aware that the problem is that they don't accept themselves. They reject themselves because they are not what they pretend to be. They wish to be a certain way, but they are not. And for this, they carry shame and guilt. Humans punish themselves endlessly for not being what they believe they should be. They become very self-abusive and they use other people to abuse themselves as well. But nobody abuses us more than we abuse ourselves. And it is the judge, the victim, and the belief system that makes us do this. True, we find people who say their husband or wife or mother or father abused them. But you know that we abuse ourselves much more than that. The way we judge ourselves is the worst judge that ever existed. If we make a mistake in front of people, we try to deny that mistake and cover it up. But as soon as we are alone, the judge becomes so strong, the guilt is so strong, and we feel so stupid or so bad or so unworthy. In your whole life, nobody has ever abused you more than you have abused yourself. And the limit of your self-abuse is exactly the limit that you will tolerate from someone else. If someone abuses you a little more than you abuse yourself, you will probably walk away from that person. But if someone abuses you a little less than you abuse yourself, you will probably stay in the relationship and tolerate it endlessly. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I was thinking about one of my clients. Um, it's so true that we're our own worst enemy. And I have a client who is, is stuck in her own hell, in her mind, and she's conf conflicted by politics coming in and, and social media and, and feminism versus uh, the patriarchy. I mean, all these social values come into her mind and, and confuse her and she tries to sort it all out, but it's so much that she gives her own, she gives herself her own nervous breakdown almost. And uh, that creates illness and it's, it's just created by herself essentially. And so many people are like that. And you have to um, break people out of their, 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 their personal hell with these small tests um, of courage to, to kind of get them to deconstruct the, the issue. You know, so we have it in small parts in, instead of one really large problem. And uh, you go at it slowly, but... Yeah, I mean, one of the things I realized in the monastery when I was having my own spiritual uh, transformation is that I realized that I was my own worst enemy and I was doing everything to me that was painful. And, and I, was, I was the judge, executioner, and the, the prisoner all at the same time. So his words resonate with me on a 
personal and professional level. Nice. We have the need to be accepted and to be loved by others, but we cannot accept and love ourselves. The more self-love we have, the less we will experience self-abuse. Self-abuse comes from self-rejection, and self-rejection comes from having an image of what it means to be perfect and never measuring up to that ideal. Our image of perfection is the reason we reject ourselves. It is why we don't accept ourselves the way we are and why we don't accept others the way they are. Yeah, if you have an image of perfection and you can never meet it, then you start to get into... uh self-loathing you know why why bother what what does it matter anyway and a lot of the guys i worked with in in the monastery uh who had addiction problems it's it's the same thing what's the point you know what do i matter i might as well treat myself like a worthless being and then uh you know reap the consequences and and then complain about it but you know, never do anything about it because they don't matter. So one of the monks actually told me once, he was like, you need to treat yourself like a saint and, and keep yourself at a higher standard because you, you, you matter. Like you're, you're a big deal being, you know, in a human form. See, a mystic sees all this in, in terms of soul and form and body, soul and physical body. Whereas people who are stuck in self-loathing don't see spirit. They just see physical body. They, they don't see spirit. And so when we can see the spirit and kind of imagine us as a, as a, a spark of divinity, like an offshoot of, of what created all this, um, then after a while, after some training, we start to treat ourselves much better because we treat ourselves like, the, like a person who wouldn't do that to themselves right? Like someone who matters. Mm -hmm. Um, And the final paragraph, there are thousands of agreements you have made with yourself, with other people, with your dream of life, with God, with society, with your parents, with your spouse, with your children. But the most important agreements are the ones you made with yourself. In these agreements, you tell yourself who you are, what you feel, what you believe and how to behave. The result is what you call your personality. In these agreements, you say, this is what I am. This is what I believe. I can do certain things and some things I cannot do. This is reality. That is fantasy. This is possible. That is impossible. One single agreement is not such a problem, but we have many agreements that make us suffer, that make us fall in life. If you want to live a life of joy and fulfillment, You have to find the courage to break those agreements that are fear-based and claim your personal power. The agreements that come from fear require us to expend a lot of energy, but the agreements that come from love help us to conserve energy and even gain extra energy. And then he goes on to um, talk about the four agreements which raise your energy. This this was just the introduction to the book. Um, And yeah. Yeah, the be impeccable with your word, first agreement. Second agreement, don't take anything personally. Uh, third agreement, don't make assumptions. And the fourth agreement is always do your best. I mean, I mean these are great, right? Uh, I love that. Who doesn't love that? Yeah, it's, it's an introduction to kind of get you thinking uh, as to who and what you really are. Uh, I like, I like that ending. Um, and it's true. I say the same thing when people realize that they're, they're the power behind everything that they can experience. Then you start to live life a little more spontaneously, a little more creatively, you know, with a little bit more color and, and, and enthusiasm. And you get rid of this rigidity being stuck in a certain paradigm I think when I think that's what he means by agreements. You make these these these. You have this conditioning, it, it, and it creates a box. And if you're in a box that has four sides, and you can't leave that box unless everything agrees inside of it, you won't be able to approach anomaly, right? Like you won't be able to approach chaos. And a lot of life is chaos. 
a lot of life is anomaly and unexplored territory. So it's, 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 I think it's when you finally release the walls that you're stuck in and you release those, that past conditioning and you're open to each moment and you're spontaneous and, and you're just observing what goes on around you instead of judging, then you can live each moment the way it was supposed to be lived and, and not based on what you learned from before on how things should be because you're never going to be able to judge how things should be to a certain extent. It, there's always going to be unexplored, chaotic, and unknown territories and, and realities coming at you. So it's like you just got to roll with the punches and then you'll be okay.